Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is Brian Raftree, the writer and host of a fascinating narrative podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network called Do We Get to Win This Time? It's a podcast about how Vietnam movies have shaped the way we think about the Vietnam War. The Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, First Blood, Platoon, they're among the hit films dealing with the Vietnam War, a conflict that divided moviegoers and inspired filmmakers. For decades, Hollywood released countless films about the war and its fallout, from action flicks to combat tales to sweeping dramas. Through exclusive new interviews, Do We Get to Win This Time chronicles the making of Hollywood's most ambitious and controversial Vietnam movies. Along the way, we also learn how these films reflected and shaped moviegoers' feelings toward the war and toward each other. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. Now on to my conversation with Brian Raftree. Hello, Brian Raftery. Welcome to Making Media Now. Hey there. Thanks for having me. It's it's great to be talking to you and congratulations on launching this really very cool audio documentary podcast series called Do We Get to Win This Time, which uh, goes into just fascinating detail about how the Vietnam War uh, was basically covered or treated in a whole range of films beginning in the 1960s and moving up through, I'm going to guess the eighties or nineties. I've only listened to, well, I think you've dropped four and I've, I've listened to all four of them. I just finished one just a little while ago, but um, you know, when I was, when I saw promotion for this uh, podcast series, it was so right in my sweet spot because I am just manic fan for the films of the 70s, the films of the 80s, and particularly that tribe of filmmakers uh, that you spend a lot of time uh, concentrating on in the 1970s. And, and you know, maybe everybody looks back with kind of misty-eyed nostalgia to, you know, the times that films were made um, way back when, when they seemed to be just bigger in everything, thematically bigger, bigger in social import. Uh, and so films ar- around and about the Vietnam War definitely hit that bullseye. Tell me how that idea came to you. And and when you were charting out the many paths that you could have taken, uh, why you chose to take the paths that you did. You know, it came because um, the podcast is for The Ringer and Bill Simmons, who's the founder of The Ringer, uh, happened to write a college term paper on Vietnam movies. And so I had done a podcast, uh, a narrative podcast for The Ringer uh, a year and a half ago about Siskel and Ebert. And we were kicking around ideas of what to do next. And they came to me and said, are you interested in Vietnam movies? And I was just immediately flashed to being 11 or 12 years old and begging my parents to let me see Platoon. I mean, I just like because I was born after I was born in late 1975. So this, the year that, you know, for all intents and purposes, most historians peg is the end of the Vietnam war, even though that war went on, you know, took all kinds of shapes, but I was absolutely fascinated by these movies in this war when I was a preteen, which is really strange. I mean, I, I, the only way to explain it is that 
it was kind of a big part of popular culture by the time I was 10, 11, 12. It was on TV. I knew all these movies. I'd heard of Apocalypse Now. I'd heard of The Deer Hunter. I hadn't seen them at that point. Mm-hmm. I probably read the Mad Magazine parodies. It was probably because my parents were very careful about what R-rated movies I could see at a young age. Um, but I was I was deeply fascinated by the Vietnam War. And I was thinking back recently, you know, I didn't have the kind of dad who threw on World War II movies or World War One movies. I mean, these were really the main war movies I consumed growing up. And so when we were charting the show. You know, they kind of gave me free reign as to what movies I wanted to cover. I mean, it was understood that there there are these biggies like Apocalypse Now and Platoon and The Deer Hunter and Rambo, um, almost all of which get their own kind of episodes. But I was also really interested in the movies that may have fallen into the margins. I was interested in drive-in movies, horror movies that came out about Vietnam veterans. I was interested in some of the documentaries that came out while the war was still going on because they had such a hard time getting released. Um, But I was also just kind of interested in tracking how from this period from like the late 60s to the mid 90s how what how hollywood's depiction of vietnam and its interest in vietnam reflected how americans are feeling about vietnam and again i wasn't there so it was very presumptive of me to be to say hey in 1972 here's the mood of the country from a guy who who wasn't around for it but you know through interviews i did a lot of interviews with for the show with veterans with filmmakers with vietnamese americans with all kinds of people who went through this time um and you know, I, I was kind of fascinated by how much I absorbed about Vietnam while, while I was younger and how little I actually learned. I mean, it's one of those things where once you start studying this war, you realize you could just spend the rest of your life focusing solely on Vietnam and probably probably never learn everything about it. Well, absolutely true. And for so many reasons, you know, one of them being that at the time, you know, from a sort of a geopolitical standpoint, you know, Vietnam was sort of exhibit A for those who who believed in what was used to be referred to as the domino theory. Right. right. So if if the communists win here, then we lose. And if you lose China, uh, I'm sorry, if you lose Vietnam, you're going to just lose all of Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. But backing up for just a minute. So as this preteen who has this fervent interest in Vietnam movies, what knowledge of the Vietnam War, let's say historically, did you possess at the time? I had a little bit. I mean, I, you know, I did learn. I did go to a thankfully like a public school in Pennsylvania that actually had a pretty good, uh, you know, I know there's so many fights now about what to teach in school. But back then in the late 80s, early 90s. There were certain things that were taught, and the Vietnam War was certainly a several, you know, several weeks or month long lesson. Um, but I also, you know, I I was kind of lucky in that my dad was a history major, and I, he had a lot of history books, so I could pick up books and try to understand. And as strange as this is to say, one of the real kind of gateway points for me for Vietnam was uh, Marvel Comics had a comic book called The Nam, which was written by a former Vietnam vet, and actually won a lot of awards from veterans groups. It was not. It was not a ridiculous, you know, comic book sort of treatment of Vietnam. It was very kind of grounded. And yeah, I actually I remember a lot of, actually. Yeah, it was really good. And I actually remember a lot of terminology and a lot of my early understanding of kind of big picture conflict and day to day life of the troops was kind of shaped by that. But then I, I also was at least old enough to realize that not everything in a comic book is going to be comprehensive. So um I I did pull a lot from history books, but I think also a lot of it I did kind of have this naive belief when I was younger that if you watched a movie or a couple of documentaries about a historical event, then, you know, you've got it, which is clearly not true. Absolutely. What So what's really interesting of the four first four episodes and, and remind me how many they're going to eventually be. Uh, there's eight plus a prologue. Yeah. 
Okay, eight plus the prologue. When I was listening and listening to the particular films that each of the episodes sort of focus on, there's multiple films that are mentioned in each episode, but there's a few that kind of are the focal point. It felt like, for instance, the Green Berets, which you go into in in the first episode, that almost felt like that was the version of Vietnam that um, that American citizens slash moviegoers were ready to comp- mm. to absorb at that time. And then as things move into the seventies, um, the complexities of 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 the war feel not just more palatable. But much more part of every everybody's everyday existence. There's a great um, excerpt. I don't remember who said it in one of your first episodes where I think it's a movie executive is quoted as saying people who are sitting home, you know, watching American soldiers die in Vietnam on television don't want to go to the movies to watch American soldiers die in Vietnam. And it almost it you know, it had to be when is society going to be ready for the telling of this story. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's so fascinating about the green berets because it's 1968. I mean, that really is the height of, you know, there's so many heights and, and apexes of the Vietnam combat, but a conflict, but like, boy, 1968 to release a movie about Vietnam in that year uh, is kind of like, I kind of can't believe it happened. I mean, and that movie is very much, as you said, it is very much a world war II film transposed onto Vietnam. I mean, I, I actually, it's funny, John Wayne is kind of a recurring character in the show, like all the way up to the end. He keeps coming up, keeps coming back, and he's a little bit of a cultural punching bag now. I have to say, I am a huge fan of John Wayne Westerns. I never really loved his war movies that much, but I do. I did feel a little bad at a certain point where I was like, boy, I'm really beating this guy up. But he did provide with that movie a very safe, I mean, literally and figuratively kind of bloodless look at Vietnam right. um, that, you know, in the first 10 minutes lays out kind of, in, you know, the domino domino theory in some ways, and that makes the case for Americans being there. And what people forget about the Green Berets is that it was like a huge hit. I actually, there's actually some misinformation that it didn't do that well. It didn't do well critically. I mean, it was yep. really kind of destroyed by critics, um, but it was a really, it was a big smash war movie about Vietnam. And I think, cause it played it straight down the middle. And then after that, almost nothing for years and years. I mean, it takes a long time for that 70s kind of renegade Hollywood spirit to really kind of find a way into Vietnam. And when they do, you know, you start getting movies like Taxi Driver, which is not a Vietnam movie, but is at least talking about veteran. You know, it has a a, a veteran, though, again, Travis Bickle might be lying about being a veteran. That was a whole other conversation. But you do have these movies that are addressing it, but it still takes a long time for Hollywood to start really plunging itself into Vietnam. Because I think from the people I talk to, it's just... You didn't want to talk about it. You don't want to think about it. It was it was divisive and it was unpopular and it was a failure to many people in many people's eyes. Yeah. And what's interesting is kind of that incrementalism of the way Hollywood figured out how to tell these stories uh, and, and then market them to the public kind of mirrored the incrementalism of the U.S.'s involvement in Vietnam. Because, you know, first we're there as advisors in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, and then ground troops are in there in 65. And then you mentioned 68, uh, which is the year of the Tet Offensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, for um, I'm going to guess that a lot of folks listening to this podcast know what that is. But for those who don't, Tet was the North Vietnamese uh, New Year or Vietnamese New Year, rather. And the U.S. forces were overrun, overrun mm-hmm. and 
uh, by North Vietnamese forces. And it was a big shock to the media. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that in terms of who won those battles, like the U.S. forces did prevail, South Vietnam, South Vietnamese and U.S. forces did prevail. But it was a clarion call that, well, this mm. is a real war. Whereas when you think about, say, a World War II movie, it felt very much more black and white that yeah. we, there was the allies and the axis. So the the that incrementalism in the storytelling really dovetails nicely uh, with the way you lay it out. Uh, incrementally uh, in in your podcast. So we go from the John Wayne America as the hero version in in the Green Berets to um, really a lot of shades of gray uh, Mm -hmm. lens of the Coppola's and the De Palma's um, and the uh, Michael Cimino's. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the thing that's so interesting is that as the show goes on, you really start to see more and more just how closely meshed the movies and the times are kind of meeting each other because you know my favorite episode of the show is actually the fifth episode which is about uh rambo and ronald reagan and this kind of this or this point in the 80s which i was around for and i do remember i do remember watching you know i think i watched the dedication of the memorial on tv i mean i watched the news of my parents so it's it's in there somewhere when i was you know eight or nine i became very aware of Viet- i think i was aware of vietnam veterans before i was aware of the vietnam war i mean just sure. by that early 80s kind of media coverage and the wall and you know when ronald reagan comes in you know he adopts rambo i mean there's a great picture one of my favorite i mean i it's a podcast people can't see it but one of my favorite things i found in research was this photo of reagan in the mid 80s grinning holding a bumper sticker that says Rambo is a Republican, which yeah. is one of those things where you think probably not true. <laughs> it's kind of like, and it was, but it was also interesting to see Reagan kind of adapt this adopt Rambo's like, we're going to like, do we get to win this time is from the Rambo series. It's like, yes, do we it get is. to go back right. and kind of rescue, you know, in the movie, in, in the second Rambo movie, they go back and rescue these, these soldiers in Vietnam. But the movie is basically about trying to win Vietnam. And it's part of a whole series of films in the 80s that were like we're going to go back and we're going to do it right this time and you know some of reagan's speeches from that era from his first presidential campaign he's kind of saying making the same case like you know this was a noble endeavor that we did and it just got botched by the government and these guys did nothing wrong and you know there is this kind of feeling when you see reagan speak that he's almost about to say if we could go back, we, you know what I mean? He's, he's sure. on that precipice. So right. These movies are always kind of talking to the times and the times are always kind of talking to the movies. And that's, what's so fascinating about Vietnam and Hollywood in general is that, you know, over 20, 30 years, you could see the relationship between the country and the war kind of evolve on screen. I, one thing I find really interesting is, um, you know, the, so the title of your podcast series is, do we get to win this time? And you, you note that that's taken right from that's Rambo asking a question of, is it rich? Is it Richard Crenna? Who, who Richard Crenna, yeah, was yeah. great in those movies. He's so, yeah. I, I, so when you watch this is a side, a side conversation, but when you watch some of these Vietnam films, you realize there was like a twenty-year period, like the seventies, eighties, which were so great for older middle-aged character actors because they pop Most up in all of these films. And you know, Crenna only really got in that movie because Kirk Douglas got fired. <laughs> just like there's a, this, the actors who show up in these movies is one of the most enjoyable things. Just watching whether it's Hackman and Uncommon Valor or just all these guys who. These were really good roles for these actors once they started cooking. It, yeah, cooking yeah. It up. Jam- I think James Caan is in uh, Gardens of Stone. Yeah. Uh, you know, another movie that kind of slipped through the um, yeah. slip, slip, slip through the fingers of, of the movie going public. But back to the title just for a minute. So do we get to win this time? 
what I find really interesting is, do we get to win what? And, right. and, and in Vietnam, one of the, the reasons that the the uh, popular support of the of the war dissipated was the military could not answer those questions. What right. does what constituted victory? Who are we fighting for? And right. I would venture to say that, you know, even in the mid 80s, say when platoon comes out, if you were to have polled um, moviegoers, how many of them would be able to say, you know, what were the what was the preceding events mm-hmm. that launched the U.S. into involvement in Vietnam? And a lot of people wouldn't have known. It was just it's a war and yeah. we win wars. I mean, <laughs> talk about a reference. I mean, Stripes. Stripes has right. got a Vietnam <laughs> yeah. reference, right? That's right. Ten and one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there is a great, there's that great scene in Platoon where, you know, Willem Dafoe and Charlie Sheen are talking and Willem Dafoe, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but but it's like, you know, I don't think we're going to get, I don't think we're going to win this one. He's like, we've been kicking ass for so long. It's like, our time is up. And that is kind of like a fascinating idea of like, again, I wasn't there during the time, but this idea of like, of course, we're going to win this war. Like, well, this is what America has done. And we just did it, you know, a few decades ago with the most spectacular war of all time, basically. And how could this, why was this being different than World War II? And I can't imagine the disillusionment that, that came out of result of that period. I mean, I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, but the seventies is so fast the late sixties and so and late seventies and seventies are so fascinating to me because I can't understand what it would have been like to have gone through that. You watch, you know, you watch popular culture and, and works from the fifties and you do see, this kind of Eisenhower optimism and all this stuff that again, I'm sure a lot of it was manufactured. I know a lot of bad stuff happened in the fifties, but just to see that fall and you can, you can see in the movies, you can see, you know, everyone talks about the movies of the seventies and it's like, they are grim, 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 scary. You know, it's, it's, it's a downbeat time for, for art. And it's, it's a, it seems like it was a downbeat time for everyone. You had mentioned earlier uh, some of the documentaries, the, the early documentaries that that dealt with uh, Vietnam. The most um, uh, the, the one that came to mind immediately for me was was Hearts and Minds. Uh, Peter yeah. Davis, I believe, was a, the, yeah. the director of that. When you were approaching your podcast series, um, what was your thinking around? Well, how do we you know, uh, there's how Hollywood treated it. And then there was how documentaries treated it. Were the documentaries, those early documentaries, just too raw to be palatable for the viewing audience? They're very raw for me to watch. I mean, um, you know, there's a couple that came out in the late. The ones we covered were the ones that were I was most interested in the ones that were really made while the war was still going on. Uh, And that's mostly because they were they were all theatrical releases. We did decide early on not to really do TV documentaries because in the 80s and 90s, Vietnam TV documentaries became a, a whole cottage industry. And honestly, I was like, we can't do an hour on 30 different <laughs> documentaries. Most but definitely. Yeah, certainly Hearts and Minds is very intense. There's one called the, In the Year of the Pig, which was also yeah. very hard to watch. And um, there's a really remarkable one called Winter Soldier, which is just about this kind of collection of veterans talking about what they saw. Uh, there, it's basically they came together for a conference over a weekend, and I can't remember what year. And yeah, John Kerry was, talk- was part of that one, correct? John Kerry's in there for a little bit. Yeah, you see him, yep. and it's it's harrowing stuff. I mean, it's you know, I think the rawness of some of this material. Either I'd forgotten how intense some of this was when I was younger and watched some of these movies, or maybe I just didn't. Maybe these just didn't reach me when I was younger. I mean, because I watched a lot of Vietnam documentaries in the 80s, and there's a couple of key scenes 
that were very intense that I remember. But I think, you know, I do think that the stuff that was made during the war is more raw than some of the stuff that came afterward. Um, just because they were really, they urgently wanted to get the message out while the war was still going on. Um, mm -hmm. But I think they're all fascinating and they're all, you know, what's, what's, you know, incredible is that these movies struggled so hard to get screened. I mean, Hearts and Minds was an Oscar winning movie. It had a, a pretty good theatrical release, but some of the smaller Vietnam documentaries, I mean, they barely got released here. And if they did, it was, you know, under kind of, you know, really kind of calamitous circumstances. And now they're all on YouTube. I mean, you can watch, you can watch them for free in your house at any time of the day, which is, which is great, but also kind of shows, um, you know, just how, when you have a kind of like a, a much more kind of barricaded media that they had in the sixties and seventies, how easy it is to get information out now. So when you're planning a, a podcast series like this, um, how do you draw the line or make the distinction between sociology and sort of film historian? Like which hat are you wearing and how do you achieve that balance? Uh, it's really tough. I mean, you know, I, the ringer has a really uh, great listenership and I feel like it's a wide age range, but there are a lot of younger listeners. Yeah. And let's um, just, and let's I, just pull, uh, point out the relationship between the ringer. I, uh, I'm not sure everybody knows what the ringer is. They should, yeah. because you guys produce a ton <laughs> of great content uh, and tip of the hat to Bill Simmons, who's a Massachusetts guy and oh, yeah. <laughs> talking to you from Massachusetts. Um, but anyway, just, just to let our uh, listeners know the relationship between the ringer and the line of podcasts that they produce. Yeah, it's a it's a podcast network that produces a lot of original shows about popular culture and sports, and um, they're now part of Spotify. And they, it, but you know they they've really kind of found this really interesting sweet spot where a, a lot of their main talent is is Gen X and a little bit younger, mm -hmm. um, and I think their shows are very Gen X friendly. But I think they also have a really young listenership of people who are really earnestly interested in culture and cultural history. Um, so when we're doing this show it was pretty clear from the outset that like, I can't, I couldn't pause every two seconds to explain what every single event in the Vietnam war was. You know, I couldn't, you can't do that because you would not be able to talk about anything at the same time. I couldn't make it fully kind of like a sociological kind of overview of what these movies meant because people who are listening to these shows want, some of them have not heard about the production of Apocalypse Now. Some of them don't know what the deer hunter is. Some of them, a lot of them do, but they don't may, may not know how tumultuous the seventies were and how hard it was to get these movies made. Um, so you're, it's kind of a balance of like 50 to 60% movie history right. and then sort of 30 to 40 kind of big picture kind of ideas. But, you know, for me, movies and and art have always been a way I got interested in history. Um, I just, and again, my, my late father who read a million history books would probably be a gas to hear that. I, I would rather watch a documentary or movie about awards sometimes and read a book about it at certain points in my life. But um, my hope is that the people who are the younger listeners watch some of these movies, but I'm also hoping they kind of get interested in Vietnam as a war that is now 50 years old plus. And, sure. you know, they didn't grow up with it. If you're 19 or 20, you have, plenty of other wars to recent modern wars, ongoing wars to learn about. You know, I'm sure Vietnam is only a week history lesson now at this point. Maybe maybe you get three or four days on Vietnam. I don't even know how much they teach about it anymore. Well, it's fascinating also because because the the lessons, I guess, of of, of Vietnam still reverberate. I mean, they yeah. you know, if you if you go back to the start of the Iraq war, uh, what was often refer referred to as the Powell Doctrine. If you break it, yeah. you own it, right? Uh, that all comes from his experience in Vietnam. And yeah. that if, you know, if if we're going in, we're going in all the way. And if we need the public support, 
Um, and it's a, you know, it's another topic I wanted to get your thoughts on a little bit later on about the, the difference between Iraq war movies and Vietnam movies. Very, mm. very, they were dealt with differently in terms of, um, the movie studios, but also just in, in terms of the way the public received or did not receive them, frankly. But going back to the Vietnam films for a minute, um, if you were pressed to say, OK, I can only watch five of them. What's the <laughs> Vietnam canon? What do I you know, what's going to inform me? From a historical standpoint, yes, but also give me sort of five visions of the Vietnam War, different different aspects of that war. Well, I mean, I think it's almost that's almost like asking what's the best 1977 space opera. It's a little it's a little <laughs> tough because you know, Apocalypse Now and Platoon are such crucial films. They're, you know, they're made by two of the biggest filmmakers who are close in age, like of, of their respective kind of film class. Um, right. you know, and Platoon was so big, and it's all I mean we have a whole episode about platoon and I interviewed Oliver Stone about it. And you know, it's what's amazing about platoon is when you look back is that when you see the TV ads for platoon, it's a picture of Oliver Stone. It's saying Oliver Stone went to Vietnam. Like they're yeah. using his experience as a veteran. And that movie to me is still remarkably moving. It is incredibly tough. It's probably out of all the movies I rewatched or watched the first time, it's probably the best. It's probably the one that if I were an eighth grade history teacher, it's probably still the one I would put on. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Apocalypse Now is fantastically entertaining and just a whirlwind of just imagery and mania. And I still don't know if the Brando stuff works at the end. I've always, every time I rewatch that, I'm like, oh, these first two hours are pretty good. And then I'm like, yeah, he's just kind of walking around and talking <laughs> now. And, but it's, I think that's really crucial. I would also say that, um, you know, there were all these, as I said, kind of B movies about um, veterans coming back in the 70s. And one of my favorite is called Brotherhood of Death, which is I had never seen it until I did the show. But it's a very low budget um, revenge fantasy about four black veterans who come back to their hometown in America and realize the KKK has kind of taken over the town. And after doing everything they can to try to drive them out, they eventually go after them. And it's it's a fascinating kind of document of life after the war. It's also a really entertaining revenge, revenge movie where you do mm. get kind of pumped up. Um, so that's three. I really do feel like Hearts and Minds is worth watching as a documentary for just to get the con, just to understand how the, the war was kind of being fought over and positioned in the 70s. Um, yep. And I think if you're a fan of documentaries, like, you know, that movie is manipulative in some ways. Some of the editing is very manipulative. It is, it is not... It, it is not the kind of straightforward documentary I saw as a kid in junior high school or high school. It's very much more of the Michael Moore, you know, Michael Moore has cited as a huge example. Sure. Um, and it's, it's tough, but it's also uh, for all the other Vietnam documentaries, it's, it's probably the most entertaining as weird as that word is to use. Um, and then the, the wild card movie that I really love that I wanted to cover. And I, we cover it later on is a Sydney Lumet late eighties drama called running on empty, which is about John. Oh, yeah, Hirsch, Ruby Christine. yeah. It's about this family, these two, these two um, anti-war protesters who put a napalm lab in the late sixties. And it's all about their life in the late eighties and how they're on the run. And right. I just think as someone who was close to river Phoenix's age um, and watching this like teenage, this teen eighties kid, his entire life being informed by the sixties in Vietnam, I certainly relate to that now and the fact that I was very much inundated with Vietnam pop culture when I was sure. 13, 14. But I also think it's a really lovely movie. And Naomi Foner, who wrote it, I spoke to her. And it's just one of the ones that I think 
if people want a break from the combat films, it's a really interesting aspect on the anti-war movement and what they went through. Yeah. So I want to talk about your interviews for a bit. Um, it, it sounded to me uh, like your interviews were a combination of original interviews, you know, specifically conducted for the purposes of your podcast and archival stuff that you pulled. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah, we did about 30 interviews. So most of the most of the quotes are from the interviews, but there were a couple of people, you know, and I got I got a lot of people I did not think I was going to get. I got Oliver Stone, which was kind of remarkable. Um, I got Eleanor Cop- Eleanor Coppola, who was amazing, who, you know, who made a doc, who was on set during Apocalypse Now and made this amazing documentary of her own, which Hearts of Darkness, which is a fantastic movie. Um, yeah, so when you said Apocalypse Now, I almost feel like Apocalypse, if you're going to watch Apocalypse Now, you got to watch Hearts Hearts of Darkness right after. Yeah, <laughs> to yeah. Get the I mean, I've said experience. this, I, for people who have not seen Hearts of Darkness, it is, probably my favorite documentary about movie making. And I wish, I wish every big movie had an equivalent to that where someone was just on the set for months and months filming everything. Cause it's, it's, I hadn't seen it in about 15 years when I rewatched this and I was just awestruck by it. it yeah, um, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. But we, uh, but I was able to get, I mean, the only people that I really wanted to get that we, I got a very nice letter from Ron Kovic explaining why he couldn't do it. And then Mm -hmm. we almost got Jane Fonda. Um, But other than that, I had a big wish list and I thought I'm not going to get half these people. And I think I got all of them, Um, which was really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And we we have, we have a little bit of crossover between your podcast and, and making media now Uh, about six months ago. uh, I I had um, Dale die on. And oh, I, I did a, a veterans a Veterans Day show and contacted him and he, he was a great interview. Uh, oh, he's and, fantastic! I, yeah, yeah, he's he was great. He he he, as you know, he has a he has a great voice for for broadcast. He really does have a great voice, and he gives it to you straight. And yes. I think he probably wound up in as many episodes as Oliver Stone because anytime I could throw to a Dale Dye soundbite, I was more than happy to do so. <laughs> So, you know what I find interesting, and I'm I'm very much looking forward to hearing your episode with Oliver Stone. I read his uh, biography or autobiography a couple of years years ago, and I I felt like I knew a fair amount about him going into that, but I learned so much more. But I do remember, uh, I'm, I'm about a decade older than you, I do remember when Platoon came out, it was almost the fact that he was bulletproof. In the sense that, you know, you couldn't dismiss Platoon as lefty propaganda, lefty propagandistic view of the Vietnam War, because this guy was in there. The writer director was was in there multiple tours. He volunteered to be there. You know, he left an Ivy League school to volunteer to be there. And, you know, Platoon, of course, was one of the first of his trilogy of Vietnam War films, um, uh, along with Born on the Fourth of July and then Heaven and Earth. I mm-hmm. think that's the exact order. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I found I find him to be fascinating. I find his evolution uh, sort of as a political figure or a political philosopher to be interesting. Let's yeah. <laughs> emphasize the word interesting. Yeah. But, um, yeah, very much looking forward to hearing that one. He was great. And I do, I have to say, I listened to that, uh, his memoir as an audio book, which he reads and it is a trip. I mean, there's stuff in there where he'll, he'll, he'll give some anecdote in like two sentences. That's like the wildest thing I've heard. You're like, wait, what? And then he's just on to the next thing. Um, but the making of, yeah, the making of platoon and Salvador are two of the best chapters in that book. Um, and they're, you just read them. And I mean, I've, I, I think I talk about this in the platoon episode, but like the Salvador chapter 
gave me like anxiety fits just reading about like, I'm like, how did he wake up every day having to deal with this much stress? Like just like basically just killing himself to get this movie made. And the same with Platoon. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and he is, his movies fascinate me. I'm actually excited. I'm going to go see him do a Q and a at a screening of JFK in a few weeks, which I'm really excited for Oh wow! because he's, a, he's a fascinating interview no matter what. Um, yeah. But you know, I do, I, I rewatching all three of his films for this, um, you know, he doesn't make a lot of features anymore. And um, I don't want to be someone who kind of only who kind of pines for the old days of Hollywood, because I think there's a lot of exciting filmmakers, young and old, who are making stuff now. But there is something about the energy and the hubris of his movies that he made that I really miss because I, I saw the all of his movies that I Oh, yeah. I saw all of his movies that I could in the theater on opening weekend because yep. they're always I mean, you're you're going to be completely entertained the whole time. You might walk out outraged or confused, but he he, he just he was the perfect person to make that movie. And I would say the platoon is his most straightforward movie, which is why I think also it didn't get that pushback. I mean, it is a on the ground. There's very little real world politics of it. You're, you're never in America in that movie. You are just with those grunts for that period of time in the movie, and then it ends. You know, and it's that it's sort of that classic iconic figure of the Charlie Sheen character. He's he's the babe in the woods. We're experiencing all of this madness through his eyes. Yeah, you know, it is. It's that classic kind of hero's journey. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as played by uh, our 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 beloved, our most favorite beloved Hollywood innocent, Charlie Sheen. <laughs> <laughs> was it, I can't remember if this was pre-Tiger Blood or not. <laughs> it's very pre-Tiger Blood, though. We I did his, some of his promotion for the movie when you watch him doing TV interviews. He's definitely Charlie Sheen. He's definitely he's in his lane. <laughs> well, again, talk about sort of a six degrees of separation. You got Charlie Sheen in in Platoon, and you've got his dad, yeah, Martin Sheen. And if you've if you've not seen Apocalypse, if you've seen Apocalypse Now and you remember the film where Willard, the character that Martin Sheen plays, is just drunk out of his mind in this hotel room. Oh, yeah. The actor is drunk out of his mind in yeah. a hotel room. And I'm sure you've you know, it's in uh, Hearts of Darkness, obviously, where he's doing those Tai Chi movements yeah. and he hits the mirror and it breaks and there's blood running down his hand and he's yelling at them to keep filming. Don't cut. Don't yeah. cut. Remarkable. And I think Charlie Sheen was on the set of the of Apocalypse Now for a while. I think he was like nine or ten or something. But he was I mean, he was around all that. Yeah. Well, he seems to have had a lot of formative experiences. He seems to take a lot of different forms. Over the, but he is, you know, he is also legitimately really great in that movie. I don't, I don't think any actor, I, mean, I don't think any director used Charlie Sheen as well as Oliver Stone did in, in Platoon and Wall Street. I mean, he's very, Street, he's very good in those two movies. He's, he's really kind of spot on. It's two very different kind of characters. You make uh, some really interesting points um, around how Vietnam movies were marketed. Uh, mm. particularly the ones in the seventies, it was almost like it's a Vietnam movie, but don't say Vietnam in any of right. the marketing t t talk a little bit about that. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think they were very nervous. Uh, I think when you talk to the studio executives, when they did eventually decide to kind of roll the dice on movies like the deer hunter and on coming home, they couldn't necessarily sell them as like, here's finally your Vietnam movie. I mean, when you watch the trailer for um, coming home, the Jane Fonda, John Boyd, Bruce Stern drama, it's clear that there is a Vietnam element in it, but it's mostly being sold as kind of 
the romantic triangle drama yes. that it is. Yeah. Um, the Deer Hunter is a, a little more direct, a little more blunt in its advertising, but it's also really kind of being sold as a as a big war drama. Um, and I don't I don't think they even use any. I'm not sure they use any dialogue from the movie itself in kind of the first really big trailer that they did. Um, and that changes in the 80s. That changes when you get to movies like Uncommon Valor, where there is this idea of, you know, there was this idea about uh, MIA soldiers and POWs, and they they use some of that in some of the trailers in the 80s to kind of uh, bring people in because you could finally talk about it, but you had to talk about it as a rescue mission kind of movie. It, mm-hmm. there, it wasn't really until Platoon where you sort of felt like, here's a Vietnam movie. Here's made by a guy who went to Vietnam. It is unflinching. It is not about... It is not about it's not a revenge fantasy. It is not a, a love triangle. It is a Vietnam combat movie from a, you know, with 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 pretty big stars and a big studio. And that really had rarely been done at that point. Do you go into it all uh, casualties of war? Yes, a bit. Yeah. Which is a um, probably uh, probably the one of the two or three toughest movies to rewatch when I did that. It's 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 still tough, you know, um, I found some footage. I think we used a little bit of Brian De Palma actually choking up a few years ago, just trying to talk about it. Um, and it's, that's a tough one. And it's also the, what's so strange about casualties of war that people forgot that I've forgotten is that it came out, it was a summer movie. I mean, it came yeah. out in August of 19, it came out a few months after Batman and parenthood. Like, right. Like they really thought this could be a, you know, God bless them, but they really thought like, if we put Michael J. Fox in this, because he's a huge star. Um, and it, that really is kind of how that movie got made. Brian De Palma says, like, you know, they they really wanted to do something with Michael J. Fox. And I can't imagine, I wanted to see that movie when I came out because I love Back to the Future and Family Ties. And thank God I did not see it when I was 14 years old or whatever. Like, that is a really disturbing movie. I remember um, reading, I don't know, if, I don't know if this is folklore or if it's true, but uh, just for folks who aren't familiar with the film, uh, it's, it's not directly based on it, but there, there's something took place in Vietnam called the Millet Massacre. A guy named William Calley, Lieutenant William Calley, led a massacre on a Vietnamese village of of, of uh, were they civilians? Were they not civilians? That was always an open question or it seemed to be at the time he was court martialed, et cetera, et cetera. But that that notion uh, is dealt with in casualties of war. Sean Penn is the aggressive, amoral um a soldier the michael j fox character is again sort of the innocent he's the moral center of it and if you're thinking you're getting marty mcfly uh or alex keaton yeah. you are not it's a searing performance on both their sides and i remember reading that uh that fox was really wigged out because sean penn was as brutal and aggressive toward him whether or not oh, the yeah. camera was running because <laughs> he just wanted to mess yeah. with his head yeah, and you, what's also interesting about Casualties of War, as I mentioned earlier, these Vietnam movies were kind of a, a boon to all these middle-aged kind of great character actors. But it was also, if you look at the Casualties of War cast, it's John C. Riley, it's John Leguizamo. You look at Hamburger Hill, and it's Don Cheadle, it's Courtney Vance, um, it's Dylan McDermott. These movies were also, I mean, and Platoon was probably the first time most people had, I think a lot of people probably had not seen Willem Dafoe in a lot of stuff at that point. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of Tom young Berger. actors who... Tom Berenger, yeah. I mean, he had a little bit just thinks the big chill, but like I think for a lot of young male stars, because they were always male, these kind of male-centered movies, you can go to these movies. And I mean, the movie Dogfight I mentioned, it's you know, it's one of Brendan Fraser's first movies. He's in it for like four minutes, but mm-hmm. this was this was like seven or eight years where, where 
they really needed 20 something guys. And so I feel like there's a couple actors who I'm sure auditioned for 10 different Vietnam films in the same kind of period. Uh, but a lot of great actors, young actors kind of pop up, especially in those late eighties films. So how do you, what is your take on Rambo as a piece of revisionist history uh, as opposed to, you know, as a Vietnam uh, movie? Uh, did, did you have a sense that that was the writer director's intention or was it, let's just create this character who was obviously so psychologically impacted by the Vietnam war and actually even probably more so uh, by the reception that uh, the John Rambo character had when he comes home as a Vietnam veteran, when his, you know, one of his classic lines, not only do we get to win this time, but one of the classic lines in that movie is nothing is over. Nothing right. is over when he when he just that's his lament. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to quite a few people who worked on the, the first two Rambo films. The third one is is when he goes to Afghanistan, I think, which is the one where it's like, boy, this really this 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 franchise went a little overboard very quickly. Um, you know, Mario Casar, who was one of the producers of the series, it was is kind of he told me he's like I didn't care about politics like at all he just there was no for him he didn't care about the politics of the Ram the first few Rambo films um and Dave Morrell who wrote the wrote First Blood the novel which by the way is a fantastic novel like I have Hmm. not read a lot of great action novels right it's so well written it's so vivid it's much darker than First Blood the movie um you know but he was very I mean I spoke to him he was very much impacted by Vietnam and meeting, he was teaching, he was a Canadian who come to Penn State and he suddenly was teaching these v- returning Vietnam vets. He was very impacted by what they had, what they were going through. And the book is not, when you read, when you read the first blood, the novel, and actually when you watch the first movie, which is a really great 90 minute thriller, it's one of the, rewatching the first two Rambo films is one of the best things I did for the show because I'd forgotten how great first blood was. Hmm. Um, and I'd forgotten how, troublesome yet entertaining the second one is the second one is again kind of a wild movie but some of the action scenes in that are fantastic um i actually never saw the second one what's the premise remind me of the, the second premise. one is when he goes back the second okay. one is when he goes back okay and brian and you know he's it's it's again it is a troublesome movie in some ways but it is like a much bigger budget and like all those 80s action movies now where you're watching an actual building blow up on screen you're like they blow up a building to make, <laughs> make this you know um but I think that Sylvester Stallone himself has kind of said like Rambo was not political at all. Like Rambo was not a Republican. He wasn't a Democrat. He wouldn't have been anything. Um, it was just the, it, what he was, his politics were solely personal. It's just that he had been sent to this war and he came back and he felt he was treated terribly and he didn't know where he fit in anymore. And I think that's why, especially first blood resonated with so many people, because I do think as far as kind of like an outsider coming into this, you know, it's, John Rambo comes back to this relatively small town and is immediately made to feel like an outcast. You know, it's who could not relate in some way to that as, as some sort of feeling like I, I went and did this thing everyone told me to do. And now there's nothing for me. So the politics of the Rambo movies are fascinating. And, but they're also, as I said, they're both really, the first two at least are really well-made action movies. And, you know, I can see why Ronald Reagan would, would want to have a Rambo's Republican, <laughs> Republican bumper sticker. But I don't think Rambo, I don't think he watched the movies that closely. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
so I'm I'm curious as to what your take is, not to you know force you to summarize something complex, um, in the reception or perception of say Iraq War movies, uh, compare in comparison to uh, Vietnam related movies, you know, in the I would say in the decade or so. Uh, actually, the Iraq war in many instances was still kind of going on when you started to have films like The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark yeah. Thirty and Green Zone, et cetera. Yeah. If I'm correct, I know that uh, Hurt Locker won best film. Um, I don't know that a lot of them did great box office. And I do remember at the time still reading on the part of a, the moviegoer of like a Vietnam hangover uh, yeah. in, in terms of how war movies were were received. It's a t- it's an interesting question because there's there is sort of a what if and it's element to it that is if 9/11 had never happened if we hadn't kind of had this kind of general mood of like oh man we are going to hell maybe there would have been a little more of a receptive audience to movies like Stop Loss and you know Hurt Locker did not make a lot of money it's a great movie and it won best picture but it was not a commercially super successful film um, and I don't think any of the Iraq war movies where I can't, or the Afghanistan movies were really in any way kind of block even came close to making like $50 million. I think they were very, very tough sales. Zero dark 30 may have done better, but I think there was a general, and I think there's because those wars were still ongoing because they were also in their own ways, kind of confusing conflicts. I think also because a lot of people felt from the get go that this war shouldn't have happened. Um, I think it was a tough sell. Um, you know, what's interesting to me is that what's really telling about the movies of the Iraq war era is that one of the most successful films of that time, war films, um, was The Fog of War, which was a documentary about Robert McNamara and about Vietnam that, yep. you know, one was, was a really Errol Morris. And, it, you know, I think it won best documentary and it was you know not a huge hit, but it was definitely like one of the most decorated movies of the early aughts. And I think it was a weird time where people were thinking, I am we're ready to deal with that that troubled war once again we will talk about that and we'll we'll go through this tough documentary which is just you know kind of a harrowing movie on its own but the war in front of us right now we want nothing to do with and i don't i don't blame people for that i mean it's just kind of i don't begrudge i don't think in 2007 did i want to watch an iraq war movie i don't think so i don't i mean i would i probably i did and i would have but i don't think it was anyone's first choice but i also again I think 9-11 shifted so much of what moviegoers wanted to go see in a theater. And it really kind of stuff that was downbeat that had to do with kind of international conflict was just a turnoff for a lot of people. And I would say the the result of that, say, is um, the most recent Top Gun movie where mm-hmm. it's a technical, you know, tour de force. There's some battle. There's a lot of battles going on, but the enemy's not even mentioned. That is kind of that is the most. I mean, and I really enjoyed that movie. I saw it twice in the theaters. It's a it was a blast. Um, and I'm a big Tom Cruise fan, knowing that it's that's a very problematic fandom anymore. But yeah, at a certain point, it's comical how neutered that movie feels in terms of a geopolitical combat, where it's like they could be fighting. Arkansas for all for all we know. I mean, the, the geography and topography doesn't support that, but you know, it's, it could have been anyone. They may as well just made up a country and just you know, or made up just put a set on the moon or something. Like it just, um, I don't. I think that would have really impacted the movie if they had set it in a specific place. 
Brian, when, you're, when you're not uh, hosting and producing podcasts, you're also you're you're a writer. You're having your your work appearing in Wired magazine, New York Times, Esquire, GQ, and you're the author of a book called Best Movie Year Ever: How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. Um, how did you come to journalism? How did you come to be focusing on writing about uh, the movies? Um, I still don't know. I mean, my parents were both journalists, but I, there was never a moment where I sat down and said, I want to do the same thing my parents do, which I don't think anyone ever consciously says. Um, but I did grow up going to newsrooms and reading a lot of newspapers and reading a lot of magazines. And so I definitely, at a certain point, I just really wanted to be a magazine writer. I just thought magazines, which are now kind of <laughs> a very troubled medium. I haven't written a magazine story in a long time. Um, but that was the real thrill was the idea of going to New York and working at a place like GQ or Entertainment Weekly and getting to write about culture uh, for like a wide audience. And I just I've always loved reporting. Again, you know, my dad was a history was a was a, a news editor, but he was a history major. My mom was a big culture fan. My mom's, I was raised in a house with lots of books about history and about movies. So sometimes that just kind of <laughs> comes together in like almost too narratively neat way with a show like this. But I don't know. As I've gotten older, I thought maybe I'll get sick of writing about movies and writing about TV and, and music, but I'm still very interested in it. Um, I think I'm just hitting that point now where I'm, I'm kind of interested in things that didn't happen during my lifetime more than I am interested in what's happening today, because what's happening today is being covered by a million people who are doing really well. Um, but I am kind of I am, you know, a show like this or like the Cisco Niebert show where I can look back at a period that's I know a little bit about, but I can learn about while I'm making it is a lot of fun for me. Absolutely. Well, the podcast series is called Do We Get to Win This Time? Uh, listeners, seek it out. Take a deep dive. You're going to be glad that you did. And then clear your calendars for about six months and go and watch all of these films. That oh, wow, Brian, yeah. <laughs> Brian Rafferty goes into such great detail on. Brian, thank you for your time. And I'm looking forward to uh, listening to the rest of your podcast series as it rolls out. This has really been fun. Oh, this has been great. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. We'll talk again. 